you had been a popular public figure, and then you lost your following, and then you had a chance to get them back, what would you do? In John chapter 7, John is building uh, tension from Jesus' first sign back in John chapter 2, as well as the I am statements that he has made up to this point. The large crowds that have been following Jesus have begun to fade. We see this at the end of chapter 6. Some of them, many of his disciples are no longer walking with him because he's made these difficult statements. He tests the disciples, are you too going to leave? And they say, no, you have the words of life. As we continue through our chapter this morning, we see that the crowd is divided over who Jesus is. He's a good man. He leads the people astray. He's the Messiah. He's the Christ. But no, we know this other fact that means he can't be the one we're looking for. By the end of the section, the Pharisees are trying to silence anyone who is willing to openly identify with Jesus as the Messiah. In the beginning here, we see this contrast to Jesus refusing his brother's advice to go up and reveal himself, and then later he does go up. Though not building a following, he's going to clearly proclaim himself this way, that he is the light of the world who reveals God to man. As we go through this passage, look for the contrast that we see between Jesus' own righteousness and the people's unrighteousness, between light and darkness, uh, between the response of the people and the response of those who truly believe in Jesus. And we see these contrasts highlighted all throughout the book of John, but particularly in this chapter, these things are, are sort of coming to a point where people are going to have to pick sides. Are we going to be with Jesus Or are we going to be with the Pharisees? Are we going to believe in Him? Or are we going to go our own way? The first thing that I think we see from chapter 7 is that Jesus reveals God in a way that glorifies God. Jesus' brothers urge Him, be known publicly. We see this in chapter 7, particularly in verse 3. There's sort of this sense as you read through this chapter, this first part of the chapter, His brothers are saying, hey, you kind of messed up. You had this big crowd, you had the momentum, and then you turned some of them away. Why didn't you go down to Judea? There's a big feast. It's an opportunity to make your, no- your name known. Do a few miracles, get their attention again. Some of the people that left you in Galilee might follow you again. Some new people in Judea probably will follow after you. Does that remind you of anything from maybe Matthew 4? where Satan says, hey, worship me and I'll give you all the kingdoms of the earth. There's this tension where Jesus is being tempted to go his own way to seize the recognition and the authority that is due him as God, as the Son of God, before the appropriate time. In contrast to this, what does he say to his brothers urging to go up to the feast publicly and and make a scene and, and proclaim himself as king more or less. What does he say to that? The hour is not here. It's not the time for that. I'm going to obey the Father's will. He also says, your time is always here. You can go up to the feast or not go up to the feast. They're not going to give you grief, whichever that you do. But if I go up, proclaim myself to be king, seize this moment in the way that you're asking me to do it, I will have failed this temptation in contrast to the way that I succeeded the one in Matthew 4. 
I will be disobeying the will of the Father. I'll be getting things out of order in the Father's plan because it is that the Messiah will suffer and then be glorified, not be glorified and skip the suffering. And so this, I think, helps us to understand this question of, is Jesus lying when he says, I'm not going to go up to the feast? And I think we have to put in brackets and parentheses, I'm not going to go up to the feast in the way that you want me to. I'm not going to go up to the feast proclaiming myself as king. I'm not going to go up to the feast working miracles and signs for the curiosity and attention of the people. When he then does go up to the feast, one of two things happens. Either God the Father specifically directs him through the Spirit to go up at that point, and so then there is no contradiction with his previous words, or, as I was just describing, the contrast is not between going and not going, the contrast is in the manner of going and the purpose of going. And so then Jesus goes up to the feast, but not openly. Verse 10 stresses that it is as if in secret. So he goes up, but he doesn't go up to the feast to say, hey, look at me. Hey, pay attention to me. In fact, the people are all in turmoil because they say, where is Jesus? This is a big deal. This is a big feast. We'd expect him to be here, but we don't see him. And then there's the discussion about who he is. And they're divided in their response here. Some say he's a good man. Some say he leads the people astray. Which is really interesting that John would put those phrases in right after this question of, is he being honest or is he not? But the reality is, Jesus is a good man. He is not leading the people astray. And yet he has come to the feast secretly, not as the center of attention. And there is also an element of not only Jesus hiding himself, but the people hiding their conversations, verse 13, for fear of the Jews. Jesus is avoiding a deliberate confrontation, chapter 7, verse 1, because the Jews are trying to kill him. Why are they trying to kill him? Because he healed the lame man on the Sabbath, back in chapter 5. That has not gone away. The people are very interested in him, but they're afraid of what the Pharisees will say if they are seen to be supporting him at all, so even their conversations are murmurings or grumblings or quiet. What does Jesus do then? Jesus' brother said, go up publicly. Jesus goes up to the feast as though in secret. Jesus then points the Jews to God the Father. Chapter 7, verse 14, when it was the middle of the feast, this was a feast that lasted a week, eight days. In the middle of the feast, Jesus goes into the temple and begins to teach. What's the response of the Jews at this point? How does this untrained carpenter, how can he speak with authority, with knowledge of God's word, in the middle of one of these most important feasts of our calendar year? Jesus' response is, the teaching is not mine, but from God, the one who sent me. Verse 16. Then he says, if anyone's willing to do his will, he will know of the teaching, if it is of God or if I speak of myself. Well, if you don't know that it's from God, or if he's speaking of himself, what does that then imply, based on what Jesus just said? You don't know God. So there's this stress as well throughout this passage of knowing God versus not knowing God. Jesus' brothers don't know God. How do we know that? They don't believe in Jesus. Why are those two things linked? Because if you're going to believe in Jesus, you're going to believe in God the Father, if you believe in God the Father, you have to believe in God the Son. You can't split them apart. We've seen that several times already in the book of John. 
So, how could you speak with learning? Well, if you knew God, you know the answer to that question. It's because I am from God, I am God, I am doing God's will. Verse 18 is also interestingly worded. He who is seeking the glory of the one who sent him. So question mark, am I seeking my glory or the Father's glory? Answer, I'm seeking the Father's glory and I am true and there's no unrighteousness in me. That's essentially what Jesus is saying here. But since you brought up the topic of unrighteousness, let's talk about yours. Didn't Moses give you the law and none of you keep it? You're trying to kill me. As we go down through this passage, notice how many times the Jews who know the law are not following it. Jesus heals a man on the Sabbath and they say, you've broken the law, we're going to kill you. Jesus says, it's not breaking the law to do good on the Sabbath. You trying to kill me, that's the real law breaking. The one who has come from God is not seeking his own glory. He's seeking the Father's glory. He is true. He has no unrighteousness. In contrast, you are trying to kill him. You are trying to kill me because unrighteousness dwells in you. We'll see that especially as we get into chapter 8 next week. But we see glimpses of it here. So as we come to the end of this little section, verses 1 through 18, I think the question we need to ask ourselves is this. Do you serve God in a way that glorifies God or a way that glorifies you? This is not the main point of the passage, but it is an important point from the passage. When we go to serve God, it is very easy for us to want to do it in a way that draws attention to ourselves. We listen to the temptation of Jesus brothers that say, Hey, maybe you're not going to make a name for yourself out in the world, but you can make a name for yourself in the context of the church. You can make a name for yourself among God's people. You can be the one who's noticed in a particular way. It can be about you. People will know you as the one who has the right answers. People will know you as the one who does this particular thing consistently in the church. You can be the focus. That's the temptation that Jesus passed and that sometimes we fail. Service in the church is not about us, it's about Jesus, which means we do it the way God told us to do it, we do it for God, not us, whether anybody recognizes us or not. And God is the one who evaluates whether we've done it well, not other people. Now, will we get input from other people? Sure. But like we looked at on Wednesday night, Paul was most concerned about God's evaluation of him, not other people's evaluation of him, not even his own assessment of himself. He was living for the day in which God was going to say, have you served me well as my good and faithful servant or not? Jesus serves God as the obedient Son, not for His own glory, but for the glory of the Father. Furthermore, Jesus reveals God to man. So Jesus serves in a way that glorifies God. Jesus does so by revealing God to man. We see this starting in verse 19. He exposes their double standard for God's work. Moses gave you the law and none of you carries it out. Why do you seek to kill me? What do we tend to do when someone says we've done something bad? I didn't do that. Or we attack the person and say, well, here's your problem. They're doing that second one, right? You have a demon. Who seeks to kill you? You're crazy. We would say you're crazy. They said you have a demon. It amounts to the same thing. You're lying. 
was trying to kill you? Well, if you've been paying attention to the book of John, a lot of people are trying to kill Jesus from a few chapters back until now because they hate him and they hate what he did on the Sabbath and they hate the attention that he's receiving and they hate his work, his claim to be from God. Jesus says, let's think about this. I did one good thing and you marveled at it. Because it's not every day you see a lame man walking. But you accuse me of doing something bad because I did it on the Sabbath. So let's think about what you're willing to do on the Sabbath, the day for worshiping God in the Old Testament. You're willing to circumcise a man on the day. You're willing to take something away from him in order to serve God. I gave something to a man, restored him, in contrast to your taking away. Now, yes, it is obeying God for the Jews to practice the rite of circumcision, even on the Sabbath, because it was something God commanded them to do at a certain point, eight days after a baby boy was born. They were supposed to do it. But it is removing something from someone's body in a way that restoring someone's ability to walk is, in contrast, giving something to him. So Jesus says, if you're willing to take something away to obey God, how much more should I be willing to give something to obey God? Both are right. Neither is a grounds for you accusing me of blasphemy or violating the Sabbath, and certainly not grounds for you seeking to kill me. Why could the Jews not see this? Why could they not understand this? Well, verse 24 Jesus rebukes them, do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. They were judging with human assessment of things. The letter of the law, here's the Sabbath, don't break it. Rather than the spirit of the law, love God with all of your being, love your neighbor as yourself. If you look at Jesus making a man walk on the Sabbath, and you see in that disobedience to God, you're looking at things completely backwards. You're looking at things through merely human eyes. You're looking at things in a way that twists Scripture to be the opposite of what it's supposed to be. Jesus next reminds them, after exposing their double standard for God's work, He reminds them of His heavenly origin, which they're going to object to as well. We'll see in a moment. We see some comments from the crowd first, verse 25. Some of the people of Jerusalem were saying, is this not the man that they're seeking to kill? Well, wait a minute. I thought we just said no one's trying to kill you. You have a demon. Well, the crowds acknowledge the religious leaders are trying to kill Jesus. So not only have they tried to violate the law by killing Jesus, they're also violating the law by lying. The people speculate among themselves, look, he's speaking publicly, and they are saying nothing to him. The rulers do not really know that this is the Christ, do they? Could he be the Messiah? If they're not stopping him from teaching, maybe he is. And yet, before they're willing to follow that to its reasonable conclusion, they say, but wait a minute, verse 27, however, we know where this man is from, but whenever the Christ may come, no one knows where he is from. There was a lot of superstition and uh, 
twisted teaching that had led to this point of people saying, some of them, that when the Christ would appear, he wouldn't even know himself that he was the Christ, the Messiah. And others would say, well, maybe he would know who he was, but we know the city that he's going to be born in, and we know this man is from Galilee. That comes up later in the chapter. So if he's from Galilee and the Christ was supposed to be born in Bethlehem, this man can't be the Christ. Jesus doesn't argue with them about their false assessment there. He just says, you know where I'm actually from? The important origin of where I'm from? Verse 28, he cries out in the temple. He announces, you both know me and know where I am from. Some translations have that perhaps as a question mark. Do you, do you know me and where I'm from? Not really. But even if he's speaking sarcastically or emphatically, the next phrase, I have not come of myself, but he who sent me is true, whom you do not know. I know him because I am from him and he sent me. Regardless of the place of my birth, which lines up with all the prophecies, ultimately I am from God the Father. The reason you won't admit that is because you don't know God the Father. If you knew him, you would accept me. Because God the Father and God the Son are one. They can't have one without the other. But because you reject me, you are also rejecting God the Father. Because you have rejected God the Father and don't know Him, you, of course, can't accept me. It goes back to many of the things we looked at in John 6. God's work has to draw us out of that stubborn blindness that refuses to accept God for who He is. How do we know that they understood his words? Because verse 30 says they were seeking to seize him. They said, essentially, this man is blaspheming, so we're going to seize him because we want to kill him. No one's trying to kill you. The rulers are trying to kill you. Now some of us are trying to kill you. Why couldn't they? His hour had not yet come. Verse 8, My time is not yet fully come. There is the irony that although Jesus did not provoke excessive confrontations with the Jews who are trying to kill Him, until the moment came that God delivered Him over into their hands, they couldn't touch Him. His hour had not yet come. In the same way that he was not going to seize power as king before first suffering as the Messiah, from the Pharisees' side of things, they were not able to seize him and put him to death until God granted it to them. Many of the crowd, however, believed in him, verse 31. They were saying, when the Christ comes, he will not perform more signs than those which this man has, will he? This is pretty amazing what he's been doing. We don't think anybody greater is going to arise. Isn't he the Messiah? We come to sort of this, this uh, climax in the story. The Pharisees, verse 32, they hear the crowd. So it's been sort of a dull murmur because no one wants the Pharisees to hear their discussion. There's this confrontation with Jesus the, the murmuring gets louder. The Pharisees catch wind of it. They're like, we've got to silence him now. So verse 32, they send officers to seize him. 
What's going to happen? Jesus says, For a little while longer I'm with you than I go to him who sent me. You will seek me and will not find me, and where I am you cannot come. Remember how we've talked about this idea of people being blind to spiritual realities because they got hung up on the physical illustration or picture that Jesus gives them? Same thing is going to happen here. Notice what the people say. Where does this man plan to go that we won't find him? He's not intending to go to the dispersion, the diaspora among the Greeks, is he? When Jesus says, I'm going to go, they should be thinking back to God the Father. But when they hear go, they're only thinking on a human plane, so they're saying a lateral move geographically. He's going to go to the Greeks and preach some to them for a bit. He's going to go, you know, maybe to somewhere around elsewhere around the Mediterranean Sea. He's not going to go to heaven because if we say he's going to heaven, we have to acknowledge that God's the Father, God is his Father, and he has come from God and returning to God. So we can't acknowledge this sort of motion, so we're going to say he must be going over here. And it blinds them to the reality of what Jesus' words are revealing. Well, Jesus answers this question in John 14. We'll get there in a few weeks. Where is it that he's going? He tells his disciples, not where I go, you can't go, but where I go, you will go, because I'm going to make a place for you, and I am the one way to God. And if you are joined with me, you will see God the Father. I've revealed him to me, and you'll be united with him in that place forever. And so, but we're not to John 14 yet. We're still here. They're blinded to those realities, these people who hear his message. Jesus stands up and announces himself as the way to God. Verse 37, this is very important. On the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the Scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For the Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. We read this and we say, that's nice. Jesus is saying more things about himself. What's the big deal? Turn over to Zechariah chapter 14. We, don't know, we tend not to know a whole lot about the Jewish feasts, so when we hear something like this, it's not really a big deal to us. But in Zechariah 14, Zechariah is foretelling future events and God going to battle for his people. In verse 4, we have that idea that his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives and it will be split and the mountains will move. Verse 6, in that day there will be no light, the luminaries will dwindle. Verse 8, in that day living waters will flow out of Jerusalem, half of them toward the eastern sea and the other half toward the western sea. It will be in summer as well as in winter. And then in verse 12 of Zechariah 14, This will be the plague with which the Lord will strike all the peoples who have gone to war against Jerusalem. Their flesh will rot while they stand on their feet. Then verse 16, Then it will come about that any who are left of all the nations that went against Jerusalem will go up from year to year to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, and to celebrate the Feast of Booths. That's the feast they're celebrating right here. 
And it will be that whichever of the families of the earth does not go up to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, there will be no rain on them. If the family of Egypt does not go up or enter, no rain on them. It will be the plague with which the Lord smites the nations who do not go up to celebrate the Feast of Booths. The Pharisees and the Sadducees had intense theological controversies about how to celebrate the Feast of Booths. And there was all of this political infighting of how it was supposed to be. But they looked at Zechariah 14 and they said, if nothing else, this is important. We need to celebrate the Feast of Booths. And since God said, if you don't celebrate it, there won't be rain, well then water is an important idea attached to the idea of the Feast of Booths which was supposed to be a reminder of their wilderness wanderings and God's provision for them. Which, think about what it says in Corinthians. They drank of the rock which followed them, and that rock was Christ. When Jesus stands up at the end of the Feast of Booths, a time of receiving praise and thank, of giving praise and thanksgiving to God for the gathering in of the harvest and the reminder of God's provision for them when they were wandering and the fact that God gives them water in the desert and the fact that those who don't praise God will not have rain and the fact that living waters will flow out of the city of Jerusalem and Jesus stands up and says, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink and out of his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. Think about the significance of that. If you're one of the people of Israel standing there hearing these prophecies from the Old Testament being referenced, their experience in the wilderness being referenced, the feast that's supposed to remind them of all those things being referenced, and Jesus basically says, I am God, I give the Spirit, I give water, I give life, believe in me. What do you think the Pharisees are going to do about this? More importantly, what are the people going to do about this? There's a division among the people. This is the prophet. This is the Messiah. Verse 41, second half of it. The Christ is not going to come from Galilee, is he? This great revelation of Jesus is the one who comes from God and people say, you know what? I know my Bible trivia. He wasn't born in the right place. He can't be the Messiah. He is supposed to have been born in Bethlehem. Verse 42. The Christ comes from the descendants of David and from Bethlehem, the village where David was. Well, where was Jesus born? In Bethlehem. In the face of this great revelation of Jesus, of himself as the Messiah, they get hung up on these arguments of where they think they know something that they don't actually know, and they're blinded to the truth of what God is saying through Jesus. What about the officers? Well, verse 44, some wanted to seize him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers come to the Pharisees empty-handed. They don't have Jesus. And the Pharisees say, what are you guys doing? You were supposed to go arrest him. Verse 46. 
Never has a man spoken the way this man speaks. And we see the vitriol and the hatred and the opposition of the Pharisees. You haven't also been led astray, have you? Not one of the Pharisees believes in him. This crowd, this stupid crowd that doesn't know the law is accursed. They're damned. They're condemned by God. Who is actually condemned by God for refusing to believe in Jesus Christ whom He has sent? It's those religious leaders who knew the right answers, who knew the Scripture and were blind to what God was doing right in front of them. And to show that they were not aware of all of what God was doing, Nicodemus stands up and says, Our law doesn't judge a man before we've heard him. Why? Nicodemus, he who came to him before, verse 50, being one of them, who's the them? The ones who believe in Jesus, and also one of the Pharisees, one of the Sanhedrin, their response to him is, you are not also from Galilee, are you? You Galileans go hang out together. We're not going to listen to you. Search and see that no prophet arises out of Galilee. Now, wait a minute. Do they know that Jesus was born in Bethlehem? At least some of them have to remember what happened earlier when Herod tried to kill all the people in Bethlehem and they fled down to Egypt and then they went up to Nazareth of Galilee afterward to fulfill both prophecies. He is from Galilee and he is from Bethlehem. But they refuse it. And chapter 7 stops there. And we'll, we'll get to chapter 8 in just a moment. The question at this point is, what are you and I going to do with Jesus? Do you and I have double standards? Do we judge and assess things by external appearances, by what we think we know versus what God actually has said? Are we potentially blinded to heavenly truths by the earthly pictures that are used in God's Word? And our so-called knowledge of God from sources other than God Himself well, so-and-so said it must be this way, so even though the Bible says this right in front of me, it can't be true because so-and-so said it was this other way. I'm not saying you should throw out what you hear in Sunday school or from pastors or from anything else, but the authority comes from God's Word through Jesus as the Word of God. And if I say something that contradicts that, I don't care how long I've been your pastor, believe this Word over my words. The Pharisees were hung up on the traditions that they had built up around the coming of the Messiah. The people were hung up on the ideas that they had about who the Messiah had to be, where he was going to come from, all of these sorts of things, instead of what God had actually said and what was actually true. When Jesus stands up and says, I'm the way, do you believe him, do you receive him, or do you come up with all of these excuses why he can't be the one that you need to follow. This culminates in chapter 8, verses 12 through 20. We'll discuss more in the sermon discussion time why verses 1 through 11 of chapter 8 probably weren't part of the original manuscripts. I don't want to focus on that right now. What I do want to do is look at verse 12, where Jesus speaks to them again and says, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. Pharisees raised two objections. Verse 13, you are testifying about yourself. Your testimony is not true. 
and verse 19, where is your father? Jesus responds to these two objections. Even if I testify about myself, my testimony is true because the law says you need two witnesses. Who are the two witnesses? I'm one of them. My father is the other one. Two witnesses. What I've said is true. You have no right to question what I've said. With regard to where his father is from, where they doubt and question his origin, as they will continue to do in chapter 8, even going so far as to say, we're not illegitimate children, but hey, you are. Jesus says in verse 19, You know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. And this wraps up this section of Jesus' teaching in the temple. It says, These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, and no one seized him because his hour had not yet come. Jesus starts in Galilee. His brothers say, hey, go down to the feast. Make a name for yourself. Jesus refuses that temptation, but he does go down to the feast, not to make a name for himself as king, but to announce himself as the one sent by God to fulfill the prophecies of the Old Testament that all of the feasts and celebrations and rituals that they did were pointing to, they're fulfilled in Jesus himself. in answering all of the objections of the crowds, in answering all of the objections of the Pharisees, he points out the fact that what he says is true, that he is true, that there is no unrighteousness in him. And so the only thing left for us is this. Jesus says he's the light of the world, the source of eternal life. Are we going to raise objection after objection like the crowds did? Or are we going to receive him as our God as our Lord, because He is the light. Jesus said to John back in chapter 3, people don't want to come to the light because it exposes their sin. But coming to the light is the only way our sin will ever be dealt with. Jesus said to the Samaritan woman, I'll give you living water, which He refers to again in chapter 7. I'll give you living water, eternal life, she says, you know what? I've lived a bad life. He's revealed all of it to me. I'm going to believe in Him, and so do the Samaritans. But Jesus announces this to His own people, and a lot of them refuse to believe Him. Are you going to receive Jesus, or are you going to reject Him? Recognize the implications of rejecting Him. You can't say, well, I reject Jesus, but I still believe in God. That's what a lot of people today want to do. They say, well, I believe in God. There's a God out there. Jesus says, you can't stop there. If you reject me, you forfeit all claim to say you believe in God. Because I am from God, I am God, I reveal God to men, and so if you reject me... You don't know me, you don't know God, you have no part with me at all. We have to receive Jesus as God, as the light of the world, as the only way to God, as the one who is the Word of God come to earth to reveal God to man. 
or we throw out the whole Bible and go our own way. You can't go half measures with this. Where are you? Do you believe in Jesus as the light of the world? And if you have, do you take Jesus as the light of the world into the darkness of the world around you and say, as Jesus did in John 3, come to the light. As Jesus did in John 4, receive the living waters. Answering the objections of the crowds and of those who think they know all these things about God, who in their arrogance don't know God at all, with the truth of Scripture and the testimony of Jesus Himself, and say, you need to believe in Jesus. There is one way to God. And it's not according to your imagination. It's not according to some religious system that you think that you can follow to the best of your ability. It is only through belief in Jesus, in the way that He has revealed Himself, in the words of Scripture. You need to trust in Him too. That's our job as well. Believe in Him for ourselves. Take Him to the world around us. And then follow Him as His disciples. And that's going to cost us. Nicodemus was ridiculed by the Sanhedrin when he spoke up for Jesus. The crowds were at, get, building to a point of threat to one another because of some of them saying maybe he could be the Messiah. So recognize that following Jesus is not an easy thing or just a quick decision and then you can do whatever you want and there's no, there's no consequences from it. If you follow Jesus, your life is going to be harder at some point because you follow Jesus. But when the choice is following Jesus and your life being harder because the world hates Him, or not following Jesus, having the world love you and being condemned for all eternity, hopefully we see that temporary light affliction is far more worth it than eternal condemnation. Jesus is the light of the world who reveals God to man. Is He that to you? Do you tell others that He is that? Do you live for Him as His disciple despite the personal cost? Let's pray. Dear God, as we look at this passage together, there are many great and amazing truths. I pray, Lord, that everyone in here would know You as the light of the world, the One who gives eternal life, the one who has living waters and bread that endures forever, testified to by the signs that you performed, the greatest of which is your resurrection from the dead, that shows that you have the authority and the power and the right to call us as your followers, as your disciples, as part of your kingdom. Lord, may we follow you as that sort of God, not out of intellectual curiosity, not because we think that you can do something that we want for us, but because you're a God who is worth following, who keeps his promises, who is without any evil within himself, the only way for us to find salvation. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.